Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. God being our helper this morning, I want to take a text from the second chapter of the Hebrew letter as we speak on Christ our older brother. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I find this expression very tender this morning. Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call those for whom he died brethren. In the year 1918, Father Flanagan's home for boys, which became Boys Town eventually, had been in existence for about a year. And a single mom who had many financial burdens and lifestyle issues dropped her young son off and left him at Father Flanagan's home for boys. His name was Howard Loomis. And Howard Loomis had polio. He wore big heavy braces on his legs and he had difficulty walking, especially up and down stairs. He could scarcely climb a flight of stairs. But over time, Father Flanagan noticed that some of the other boys in the class would carry Howard up and down the stairs on their back. And one day he asked one such boy named Reuben Granger, isn't it hard to carry him up and down the stairs? And Reuben replied, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. That line became immortalized by the Hollies in 1969 in a popular song, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. I thought of that as I read this text this past week. Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call you and me his brothers. Now, I've been blessed with two brothers in my life. I'm the neglected middle child between an older and a younger brother. I feel like an ice cream sandwich most of the time or an oatmeal cream pie. <laughs> Some of you may have never had an older brother. Maybe you are the older brother and you don't know the experience of having an older brother. I love both of my brothers, and I'm thankful for them, and as the years have passed, we've become the best of friends. I'm so thankful to be able to laugh with them, talk with them. I feel a kinship, a loyalty that is not easy to find in this cold-hearted world with my brothers. And I can conceive that my older brother, my younger brother, would do anything within their power to help me if I was in need. And I think I can tell you in all honesty today, I would do the same. I would do whatever was in my power to be there for them in their hour of need. I love them. Of course, that's the way brotherhood should be, isn't it? Brotherhood should be a close bond and kinship. The Cain and Abel story is an anomaly. When one brother slew the other, you know, that's not the way that God intended for it to be. Brotherhood is a special kind of fraternity. And a person doesn't have to be your natural kin to be your brother. We know that there are a number of fraternities in this world where people who share a common interest and a common sort of responsibility 
see themselves as brothers. It's certainly true in the military and in law enforcement, isn't it? You see these men who have been on the battlefield together, who have been on the streets together, you know, burning the midnight oil on the beat. They develop a fraternity. They develop a closeness, an intimacy, a commitment. They know one another. They love one another. They would give their very best for each other. That's brotherhood. In my personal experience, may I say my older brother and my younger brother have been great blessings in my life. And I can conceive of them saying what Reuben Granger said about Howard Loomis. If they ever had to carry me, he's not heavy. He's my brother. May I suggest this morning, my beloved, that Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call you his brother. But that's a miracle, isn't it? Especially when we consider how unworthy we are, how weak we are, how many problems we have in our lives. Most of our lives are like a tangled fishing line, you know, that is backlashed. They're so complicated and there are so many problems. And we say, why would anybody ever want to get involved in my life? And I have news for you today. Jesus Christ is not embarrassed. He doesn't shy away from it. He's not ashamed to call you, yes you, brother. You see this thought of brethren, this family kind of relationship again in verse 12. I read verse 11. Verse 12 says, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. Now that's a quotation from the Psalms of David. And you see it again in verse 17. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. I want to help you to think for a few moments today about what it means to be brothers in the same family with Jesus Christ. For in Romans 8.29, the Apostle Paul says, For whom God did foreknow, them he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now Jesus Christ, we know, is the only begotten Son of God. That expression literally means he's the unique son. He's the son of God from all eternity past. We believe in the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. And to say that Jesus is the son of the father is simply to say that he is equal. He's co-equal, co-essential, co-substantial with the father. That is, he is as ancient as the father is. He is not derived from the father, but he's of the same nature. A son is of the same nature as the father, so Jesus Christ is called the son of God. That is, from all eternity past, he is the second person of the Trinity, God of very God. But Jesus has assumed our nature. He came where you were and became one of us. He took on our flesh and our bones, as it were, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. He became our brother so that you and I might also be sons of God, adopted into God's family. Now the fact is, we don't have any right to be in God's family in nature. You see, in nature, my beloved, we are Adam multiplied. Each one of us is born into a fallen family, the fallen family of humanity, sinful men. Jesus is not a sinful man. Jesus is God from all eternity past. But the good news of the gospel is, that he is the firstborn, that is the oldest, among many brethren. Now, God has a big family. 
he has many children. Jesus said, in my father's house are a few mansions. Is that what he said? No, many mansions. There'll be more than just primitive Baptists in heaven. Now, I believe everybody will be a primitive Baptist in heaven. And you would think less of me if I didn't believe that, probably. I believe everybody will believe what we believe. They'll believe salvation's by grace alone. All praise to the Lamb that was slain. That's the song of the redeemed that gives all the glory to God and His grace. The fact is that God has a people out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Whatever political background or language, whatever ethnicity, God has a people. From all ages and history, God has had his people. Jesus came to die for them. And he's not ashamed to call them his brothers. That's why Romans 8, 17 says that we, by the grace of God, are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. We're joint heirs with Him. That is, what He has by inheritance, we also have. That's the thought this morning. Now, the word for brother in Hebrews 2 and elsewhere in the New Testament is the Greek word adelphos. You know, the root of the word Philadelphia is adelphos. And it speaks of a camaraderie that's based on a common relationship or interest. We have a special camaraderie. We have a special affinity for one another. And the fact that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren is truly amazing. You know, there's another verse in Hebrews chapter 11 similar to this where it says, God is not ashamed to be called our God. I like that. For he hath prepared for us a city. God's not ashamed to be called your God. Now, I've given both the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ ample occasion to be ashamed of me. But he's not ashamed. How then could I ever be ashamed of him? Have you ever wondered that? You know, I love that song we sing sometimes, Ashamed of Jesus, that dear friend on whom my hopes of heaven depend. The hymn writer says, No, when I blush, be this my shame, that I no more revere his name. May I be ashamed of how I've acted. And then he says that although sometimes we're ashamed of him, yet he is not ashamed of me. That's a wonderful line in that hymn. I want to ask three questions this morning as we think about Jesus Christ, our older brother. First of all, in what sense did he become our brother? That's the how question. How did he become our brother? Secondly, for what purpose did Christ become our brother? That's the why question. How did he become our brother? Why did he become our brother? And thirdly, what are the benefits of having such a wonderful brother, elder brother, what does that mean to us? That's the third question. First of all, in what sense did Jesus Christ become our brother? Well, the text says that he assumed a human nature like ours at the incarnation. Now, we know, don't we, that Jesus did not cease to be God when he came to this earth. His divine nature, his deity, was the same. He was still truly God while he was upon this earth, but he added something to it. He added a human nature. We believe that in the one person of Jesus Christ, there are two distinct natures. He is both truly God and truly man at the same time. He's the God-man. You say, Brother Mike, I don't understand that. Well, that's one of the basic doctrines of Christian faith, and it's very important, even though we can't explain it, that we affirm it, that Jesus is both truly God and truly man at the same time. It's a mystery, isn't it? 
That's what Paul calls it, 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy. That is, this is something incontrovertible. It's something not, not open for discussion. We can debate a lot of things, but this, he says, needs to be understood from the get-go. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. He's God, but he assumed a human nature. And when did he assume that nature? Not from all eternity past. Jesus was not a man before the foundation of the world. Now, he agreed to become human in the covenant. In the mind and purpose of God, Jesus said, here am I, send me. He volunteered to be the mediator. But my beloved, it was when he was born of a virgin, when the Holy Ghost came upon the Virgin Mary, and the power of the highest overshadowed her, that means enveloped her. That holy thing that was born of her was called the Son of God. He didn't become the Son of God when he was born, but he was called the Son of God. He was truly divine. And we emphasize so much in our preaching the deity of Jesus, and rightly so, because that is one of the most basic doctrines of the church. We believe that Jesus, that man that lived in Nazareth of Galilee, some 2,000 years ago was more than a man. We need to affirm that. We need to shout it from the housetops. The church of Jesus Christ is the pillar and ground of this truth, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In fact, this is the foundation on which the church is built. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, 18? Whom say ye that I the Son of Man am? Peter answered, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed this. this. You didn't learn this from the philosophers of this world. But my Father which is in heaven has revealed it unto you, and I say unto thee that thou art Peter, you're a little pebble, and upon this stone, upon this bedrock, upon this solid foundation of the revealed truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, I will build my church. I dare say that everybody does not agree with that today. Most religions in this world claim that Jesus of Nazareth was a great guru, a wise teacher, an ascended master, a philosopher like Gandhi or the Dalai Lama or Confucius, that he was a wise man, that he was a great teacher, but that he wasn't God. We want to affirm clearly today that Jesus of Nazareth was more than a man. He is God, a very God, from all eternity past. You say, Brother Mike, could you prove that? Read the Gospel of John and look at the seven signs that are listed there. These are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It says John 20, verse 31, and that believing you might have life through his name. And if you have any doubt that he's the Son of God, look at the empty tomb. We talked last week on Resurrection Sunday about Jesus conquering death. When he came out of that tomb, Romans 1.4 says, He was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. With power. This isn't a whisper. This is a shout. This is a triumphant declaration by the resurrection from the dead. If you have any doubt concerning the identity of Jesus of Nazareth, that he's God in human form, then look at the empty tomb, for that is proof positive that he is who he said he was. There's so many evidences that Jesus was more than a man. But this morning, 
we emphasize not only the deity or the divine nature of Jesus, but the humanity of Jesus, which is just as important as his deity. We believe Jesus was fully and truly human, with one exception. He did not participate in our sin nature. He was virgin born. See, he didn't have an earthly father, but he was truly human without sin. Now you say, Brother Mike, can you be a human without sinning? You ever heard the saying, to err is what? Human. And to forgive is divine. In other words, God's job is always to forgive. Our job is always to mess up. <laughs> to err is human. Can you be a human without sinning? Well, I can tell you about one, one time who was. His name was Adam. Adam, when he was created, was a human being in the garden. He was a man. How long did he live in that state of uprightness before he disobeyed God I don't know the book of Genesis doesn't tell us whether he was in the garden of Eden for a day a week a month a year or 10 years we don't know but for a period of time he was thoroughly human but he was not a sinful human until he disobeyed God Jesus Christ has come into this world as the second Adam the last Adam he's called that in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 the first man was of the earth earthy but the second man is the Lord from heaven the second man. Notice the comparisons and contrasts in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, between the first man, Adam, the second man, Adam. And what he's saying there is that you can really describe or define history in terms of two men. History is the story, basically, of two men. How many people have ever lived on the face of this earth? Billions, right? There are probably about 7 billion right now on the face of the earth. And you say, Brother Mike, what do you mean? You can boil it all down to two men? Yes, indeed. The first man, Adam, who represented all of his offspring. The second man, Adam, who represented the people that God had given to him in covenant before the foundation of the world. And that's why in this second chapter of Hebrews, you see this contrast between the first man and the second man. Listen to verse Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. One in a certain place testified. Now, that certain place that he refers to in verse 6 is the 8th Psalm. You know, when we went through the first chapter of Hebrews, we noticed how many times he quotes from the Psalms. He does it again now in chapter 2 as he takes us back to the 8th Psalm. And the 8th Psalm is a psalm with which you are no doubt familiar. It starts out like this. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. He says, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. And then he says in verse 3, when I consider thy heavens, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. When I go out on a starlit night and look at the vast expanse of this universe, look at the stars in the sky, the moon, the, the planets in their in their orbit, when I look at our solar system and the galaxies far, far away, when I think of how big and vast and magnificent creation is, when I consider thy heavens, here's the question David says that I have in my mind, what is man that thou art mindful of him? You know, the best way to feel yourself to be pretty small and insignificant, go out and look at the stars and see how far away they are and yet how bright they shine. You ever feel like a little ant crawling around on this earth in the vastness of this universe? Yes, my friends, it should evoke that reaction from us. Who am I that God in heaven would take notice of me? 
you know, man likes to thumb his lapels and pretend that he's somebody important. I'm a VIP. The fact is, my beloved, I'm not quite as important. In fact, no man is as he likes to think that he is. Especially when it comes to God taking notice of me. God is not impressed with me. He's not impressed with anybody. He's not impressed with the nation. The nations are like a drop of the bucket to him, says the 40th chapter of Isaiah. He takes up the aisles as a very little thing. All the people of the earth are like the small dust on the balance. If you've ever seen a pair of old-fashioned scales, you know, as the dust that floats in the air settles imperceptibly on the balance, it, it doesn't even weigh enough to tip the scales. All the nations of the earth are like grasshoppers before him. God is great and man is not. And therefore, when I consider the starry heavens, I ask, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Notice he quotes that here in Hebrews 2. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him, thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Man is above the minerals and the plants and the animal kingdom, but he's below the angels in the hierarchy of creation. For a little while, that word little is a reference to a brief time period. Thou madest man a little lower than the angels. The fact is, my beloved, one day we're going to be higher than the angels because of God's grace. But for now, we are below the angels in the hierarchy of creation. They have more power, more wisdom, more ability than we do. There's only one difference, my beloved. They're not redeemed, and we are. For some reason, God did not choose angels to save on the cross. But he chose the fallen offspring of Adam. And by the way, we're not lower than the angels for long, because why? Eventually we die, right? Our lives are brief. Crowned with glory and honor. God gave man charge over creation in the garden. He made Adam vice-regent. He gave him dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and the beasts of the field. And Adam even named all of the animals. That's the first science in the book of Genesis, taxonomy. And whatever he named them, that was the name there. God didn't say, now let's talk about that. God accepted it because Adam had been given this responsibility. So he is charged with the task of replenishing the earth, multiplying, populating the earth, and taking dominion over the earth and subduing it. That's the basis of all legitimate science. The creation mandate in the book of Genesis, take dominion over the earth. In other words, in this earth, there are resources that can help and better humanity. There are chemicals, there are minerals, there are herbs, He's saying, Adam, I want you to discover all of the richness and the wisdom that I've hidden in nature and determine how to use it to the betterment of humanity. Do you believe humanity is in a better condition today than they were back in the medieval world? That is, as far as civilization is absolutely. We have air conditioning. We have transportation readily available. We have fuel. You see, science has bettered humanity in many ways. It has also, my friends, been used to propagate the sinful side of our fallen nature, hasn't it? But the point is, Adam was given dominion over the earth, and you set him over the works of your hands, says verse 7. Notice verse 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. 
For in that God put all in subjection under man, he left nothing that is not put under man. Adam was given charge as the second in command, if you please, the manager of God's world. Notice the last sentence in verse 8. But now we see not yet all things put under him. That's where we are now. Here's man as he was intended to be. To harness the energy and the power and the best resources of nature to the betterment of humanity. But you know, right now, it doesn't look like we're doing very well at that. It looks like cancer is beating us. Heart disease and hypertension is beating us. Diabetes and viruses, right? I mean, the cemetery out here is proof that we don't see all things under man's control. That man, it looks like he's being defeated by life. The world seems to be dominating humanity instead of humanity dominating the world. Isn't that right? War, violence, human exploitation, child trafficking, rape, murder. Does it look like that righteousness is winning and that man is living in paradise? No, my friends, as Dorothy said to Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. We don't right now see all things put under man's feet. In fact, we see man put underneath the ground, don't we? Death seems to have the upper hand. We talked about that last week. What a great enemy. We'd love to dress it up and pretend that it's not there, but we know it's an enemy, don't we? And I hate it. I despise it. It's the king of terrors. It hurts to lose loved ones. And it evokes within me, my beloved, a kind of indignation that I trust is a righteous indignation because that's not the way that God intended this world to operate. You see, the first Adam has failed. We need an, another Adam. We need to start over. The first Adam was given an opportunity and he ruined it. But yet, when all was sin and shame, the good news of the gospel is a second Adam to the fight into the conflict came notice verse 9 we see not yet all things put under man but we see Jesus and how do we see Jesus today by faith we see him my beloved with the eye of faith now I don't see Jesus with my natural eyes in other words you can't go to a certain street in Shalot or Calabash or North Myrtle Beach and say there's Jesus right there we see him today as he's proclaimed in the gospel right but we know he's real. We are believers. The Holy Spirit has quickened us and he has taught our minds and our hearts that the good news that God was manifest in the flesh is true. And today, as we look around us at viruses and social upheaval and political unrest and deception and fraud and all of the things that make us say something's not right in this world, my beloved, we can look away from that to the gospel as I hope you're doing this morning and see Jesus. But we see Jesus who was made where we are, a little lower than the angels. He became one of us for the suffering of death that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. You see, the two atoms is the basis of Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2. In what sense then did Christ become our brother? He assumed a human nature like ours. Verse 16 says it like this, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but the seed of Abraham. Jesus did not become 
an angel. Now we've been studying angels in the first chapter. And the Hebrews were saying, if Jesus Christ is truly the greatest, then why did he become a man? For angels are above men. Why didn't he become an angel? And the answer to that question, that's our second question this morning is, for what purpose did Christ become our brother? Why did he come? He became a man so that he could suffer and die. Notice, we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels for, here's the reason, the suffering of death. You see, as God, he could never die. We learned that angels cannot die. But he became one of us because death was necessary. Suffering and death was necessary if salvation was going to take place. Now, when I say that Jesus Christ is thoroughly human, with the exception of sin, I mean that he partook of all of the ordinary, non-sinful limitations of human nature. In his personal ministry, our Lord Jesus had a human body. He had a human will, a human mind, and a human soul. He was thoroughly human. We know that he had a real human experience. He was born. That is, he came through the birth canal, was delivered in Bethlehem's manger. Then he grew and developed. Luke 2.52 is an interesting verse. It's the only snapshot into the prepubescent childhood of Jesus given to us in the Bible. It says, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and grew in favor with God and with men. That is, he developed physically. He grew in favor with God, that's spiritually, and with men socially. That is, Jesus grew and developed according to the course of human nature, because he had a human nature, physically. The Bible tells us that he was hungry. I want to ask you, as God, was he ever hungry? No, he's not hungry, but as a man. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2 says, after fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, he was hungry. As a man, he became thirsty. John 19, 28 on the cross, one of his seven sayings on the cross is, I thirst. You see, that's human experience, thirst. He became weary. In John 4, 6, he sat on Jacob's well as he passed through Samaria because it says he was weary with his journey. Have you ever been weary? Jesus has been there. He knows what it is to be weary and fatigued. He even slept. Matthew 8, 24 describes the storm on the Sea of Galilee and it says Jesus was in the hinder part of the ship asleep. Now as God, He never slumbers nor sleeps. But you see, each of these verses, His hunger, His thirst, His weariness, the fact that He slept, indicates that He had a human body just like yours. That's right. A human body just like yours and mine with bones, skin, organs, a brain, Jesus Christ was a real man. wasn't a phantom, but he was not a sinful man. He had none of the sins that affects you and me in his nature. He also had a human soul. He had emotions. Now, I think this is an important point because in the 4th century A.D., there was a Christological heresy known as Apollinarianism after a man named Apollinaris who was a pastor of the church of Laodicea in Syria. And the Apollinarians denied that Jesus Christ had a human soul. And I think many people repeat this mistake today without even being aware of it. In fact, I heard a sermon recently in which the preacher said that Jesus had a human body, but he had a divine soul. That is, he had skin and bones like we have, but on the inside, it was God. So he was half man, half God. That's not the Bible teaching. That's Apollinarianism. 
and this was known as a Christological heresy in the early church. Apollinaris denied that Jesus had a human soul. In fact, he taught that the divine nature replaced and overshadowed his human soul, a kind of deified humanity, if you please, or a glorified form of human nature. But if you read the Gospels, you're going to notice that he exhibited the whole gamut of human emotions, love and compassion. In Mark 1.41, he meets a leper on his journey, and it says Jesus was moved with compassion. Just as you might feel deep pity in your heart, so Jesus was moved with compassion. Notice the emotion with which we're familiar. Mark 6.34, it says that he saw the people had been listening to him teach and preach all day, and they had had nothing to eat, and it says he was moved with compassion on the multitude because they have not eaten all day. He has pity. He cares. Luke 7.13 tells how he came to the city of Nain, and as he comes into the city, he meets a funeral procession in which a young man is being carried to his burial. He's the only son of his widowed mother. And it says Jesus was moved with compassion. Notice the human emotion. He had a human soul, a human psychology. He also felt sorrow and grief. The emotions of sorrow and grief are typical of the personal ministry of our Lord Jesus. For in Isaiah 53, 3, it says in prophecy, he would be a man of sorrows. And truly he was. John eleven thirty five, 35, he comes to the grave of Lazarus. And the shortest verse in the Bible says, Jesus wept. He knows what it is to grieve. He knows what it is to sorrow. He knows what it is to feel compassion for another who's hurting. Matthew 26, 38, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says his soul was exceeding sorrowful even unto death, and you and I cannot begin to measure that expression, exceeding sorrowful. Sorrow in excess. He felt deep grief as he anticipated the cross, and that leads us to the fact that he also experienced dread and a certain sense of fear. Hebrews 5, 7 says that when in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications unto him that was able to save him from death, and he was heard in that he feared. And obviously that verse has reference to what we just mentioned, the Garden of Gethsemane experience. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night of his arrest and betrayal? It says that he went a little further, Luke twenty-two forty-two, and he prayed the third time, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And it says his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. He feels the agony, the dread of Calvary. My beloved, you and I, again, can't begin to imagine what he must have felt. But yet, what a common human emotion that is. Have you ever dreaded something so much that it was just a great burden upon you? He also experienced the emotions of joy and peace. John 14, 27, he says, my peace. I'll leave with you. Here's Christ's legacy to the church. My peace, the very peace that he had, that calmness and poise of spirit in the midst of the troubles and turmoil of life, you and I are able to have that too through the Holy Spirit because his peace, he's left with us. Perfect peace. My peace I'll leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid, says the Lord Jesus to you and me this morning. John 16, he says, These things have I spoken unto you in the world, that my joy may remain in you. My joy. He had joy and peace. 
He had fear and dread. He had grief and sorrow. He had love and compassion. He had even righteous anger. Remember Mark chapter 3, verse 5? When this man had a withered hand, Jesus was about to heal him and he could see the Pharisees didn't approve of it because it was the Sabbath day and it says he looked round about on them with anger. And then he said to the man with a withered hand, stretch forth thine hand. And when he stretched forth his hand, it was made whole as the other. Jesus was angry, righteous anger. Matthew 21, 12, he came to the temple and he saw that the Father's house, which had been created for the purpose of worship and prayer, had been turned into a big business. They were making merchandise of the house of God, selling turtle doves and pigeons for people who were not only unable, but some, no doubt, who were too lazy to bring their own animals to the sacrifice. So they had set up a business to profit by this demand. And it says Jesus came in and saw it, and he turned the tables of the money changers over. He made a cat of nine tails, a scourge, and he drove them from the temple for the zeal of God's house had eaten him up. Righteous anger. Do you believe Jesus had human emotions? Amen. Not only a human outside body, but a human mind and a human will and a human soul. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Why did he do it? To suffer and die. So that in dying he might, as verse 10 says, bring many sons unto glory. He came to unite us to the sanctifier. As verse 11 says, both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified. Here you have the sanctifier and the sanctifies. The one who makes holy and the ones who need to be made holy. That's you and me. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he's not ashamed to call us brethren. He came to unite us, to make us one with God. He came to destroy the devil, as verse 14 says, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. He came to make reconciliation for the sins of his people, as verse 18 says, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted. He's able to succor them that are tempted. He came to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. For whom did he do all of this? The many sons of verse 9, or verse 10, I should have said. The sanctified in verse 11. For whom did he die? The children that God had given him, as verse 13 says. Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. In a word, he came to die for his brethren. Verse 12 saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. Final question this morning is, what are the benefits of having such a wonderful elder brother? What does it mean to you and me? It means, first of all, he stands up for us. You know what an older brother does for his younger brother? When his younger brother is being bullied on the playground, the older brother goes and he stands up for him. You know, I've tried to teach my kids through the years as they've had their stresses and bullying episodes at school and so forth. I've tried to teach them, take up for each other. Your brothers, stand up for each other. You know, that's what siblings are supposed to do. Wouldn't you say that? Isn't it wonderful to know that somebody loves you enough to stand up for you? You see, our older brother, my beloved, is our substitute. Verse 9, it says, he was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. And that word taste is interesting in that verse. You know, in olden times, they had a cupbearer or a taster. 
Nehemiah in the Old Testament was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. That means that before the king ever drank his wine or tasted his meal, the cupbearer, the taster, would go between him, go ahead of him, would stand in the gap for him and would taste it first so that if it had been poisoned, if somebody had hatched a plot to assassinate the king, the cupbearer would fall dead as the substitute and the king would be spared. He would stand up for the king, in other words, substitute for him. Jesus Christ came to taste death so that you would never have to. You say, Brother Mike, what do you mean I would never have to? I'm, my body's breaking down. I will have. But you'll never have to taste death in the ultimate sense, separation from God. Because he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He tasted that for you in your place as your substitute on the cross of Calvary. What else does it mean to be an older brother and to have an older brother? Not only that he'll stand up for you, but he'll run ahead of you. Leadership, not only substitution, but leadership. I told the story last week how the young boy was afraid to go into the dark woods with the winding path until his older brother came and said, there's nothing to be afraid of, and he ran ahead of him. Went all the way to the end and back and said, see, it's safe. That's the thought in the word captain in verse 10, that in bringing many sons unto glory, the captain of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. That word captain is an interesting Greek word. It's the word archegos, which means pioneer, trailblazer, or forerunner. And we know what pioneers are, don't we? How the West was won in America, it was won by pioneers who forged ahead, who blazed the trail, who cut a path through the woods and made a way for others to follow. The first to travel is a pioneer. Daniel Boone was a great trailblazer, a pioneer. Through the Appalachian Mountains, you know, he made a way from the eastern seaboard into middle America, across the woods, Transylvania. A brother says to his younger brother who may be afraid, I'll be your captain. Oh, captain, my captain, I'll run ahead of you. And blazed the trail. He's the captain of our salvation. My beloved, he ran ahead of us and did what we were unable to do. Fought the battle in our stead. He stood up for us. He ran ahead of us. And then finally, what does it mean to have an older brother? He walks beside us. An older brother will stand up for you. He'll go ahead of you. And then he will be your friend and companion. That's verse 17. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, he came where we were, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he's able to succor them, that is, to come to the aid and the assistance of them that are also tempted. Friendship. What does it mean to have an older brother? It means you have a substitute, you have a leader. And you have a friend to walk beside you, a sympathetic friend who has been where you are and can feel what you feel because he himself has suffered. He knows what it is to be weary. He knows what it is to be afraid. He knows what it is to be lonely. He knows what it is to be forsaken by others. He knows what it is to have a heavy heart. He knows what it is to be without to suffer privation. Therefore, he's been tempted in all points like as you are, yet without sin. He's our brother. 
The road is long with many a winding turn that leads us to who knows where. Our older brother says, but I'm strong, strong enough to carry him. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. So on we go. His welfare is my concern. Talking about you. No burden is he to bear. We'll get there. And the load doesn't weigh me down at all. For he ain't heavy. That's what Jesus says about you. It's not too much for him. He's not put out. He's not tired of your problems. He hasn't washed his hands of you finally. He says about you and me. Michael Goins isn't too heavy, Father. He's my brother. Aren't you glad you have one in heaven who's not ashamed to call you brother? Jesus wept the tears are Jesus wept the tears.